Section 7 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lawrence Trask. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Examples of Thrift. Part 2. We have referred to the wise practice of men in humble position maintaining themselves by their trade until they saw a way towards maintaining themselves by a higher calling. Thus Herschel maintained himself by music, while pursuing his discoveries in astronomy. When playing the oboe in the pump-room at Bath, he would retire while the dancers were lounging round the room, go out and take a peep at the heavens through his telescope, and quietly return to his instrument. It was while he was thus maintaining himself by music that he discovered the Georgium Situs. When the Royal Society recognized his discovery, the oboe player suddenly found himself famous. Franklin long maintained himself by his trade of printing. He was a hard-working man, thrifty, frugal, and a great saver of time. He worked for character as much as for wages, and when it was found that he could be relied on, he prospered at length he was publicly recognized as a great statesman and as one of the most scientific men of his time ferguson the astronomer lived by portrait painting until his merits as a scientific man were recognized john doland maintained himself as a silk weaver in spitalfields in the course of his studies he made great improvements in the refracting telescope and the achromatic telescope which he invented, gave him a high rank among the philosophers of his age. But during the greater part of his life, while he was carrying on his investigations, he continued until the age of forty-six to carry on his original trade. At length he confined himself entirely to making telescopes, and then he gave up his trade of a silk weaver. Winkleman, the distinguished writer on classic antiquities and the fine arts, was the son of a shoemaker. His father endeavored, as long as he could, to give his boy a learned education, but becoming ill and worn out, he had eventually to retire to the hospital. Winkleman and his father were once accustomed to sing at night in the streets to raise fees, to enable the boy to attend the grammar school. The younger Winkleman then undertook by hard labor to support his father, and afterwards by means of teaching to keep himself at college. Everyone knows how distinguished he eventually became. Samuel Richardson, while writing his novels, stuck to his trade of a bookseller. He sold his books in the front shop while he wrote them in the back. He would not give himself up to authorship because he loved his independence. You know, he said to his friend de Freville, how my business engages me. You know by what snatches of time I write, that I may not neglect that, and that I may preserve that independency which is the comfort of my life. I never sought out of myself for patrons. My own industry and God's providence have been my whole reliance. The great are not great to me unless they are good and it is a glorious privilege that a middling man enjoys who has preserved his independency and can occasionally though not stoically tell the world what he thinks of that world 
in hopes to contribute though by his might to mend it the late dr olynthus gregory in addressing the deptford mechanics institution at their first anniversary took the opportunity of mentioning various men in humble circumstances some of whom he had been able to assist who by means of energy application and self-denial had been able to accomplish great things in the acquisition of knowledge thus he described the case of a laborer on the turnpike road who had become an able greek scholar of a fifer and a private soldier in a regiment of militia both self-taught mathematicians one of whom became a successful schoolmaster the other a lecturer on natural philosophy of a journeyman tin-plate worker who invented rules for the solution of cubic equations of a country sexton who became a teacher of music and who by his love of the study of musical science was transformed from a drunken sot to an exemplary husband and father of a coal miner a correspondent of dr gregory's who was an able writer on topics of the higher mathematics of another correspondent a laboring whitesmith who was also well acquainted with the course of pure mathematics as taught at cambridge dublin and the military colleges of a tailor who was an excellent geometrician and had discovered curves which escaped the notice of newton and who labored industriously and contentedly at his trade until sixty years of age when by the recommendation of his scientific friends he was appointed nautical examiner at the trinity house of a ploughman in lincolnshire who without the aid of men or books discovered the rotation of the earth the principles of spherical astronomy and invented a planetary system akin to the tychonic of a country shoemaker who became distinguished as one of the ablest metaphysical writers in britain and who at more than fifty years of age was removed by the influence of his talents and their worth from his native country to london where he was employed to edit some useful publications devoted to the diffusion of knowledge and the best interests of mankind students of art have had to practice self-denial in many ways quentin matsis having fallen in love with a painter's daughter and determined to win her though but a blacksmith and a farrier he studied art so diligently and acquired so much distinction that his mistress afterwards accepted the painter whom she had before rejected as the blacksmith flaxman however married his wife before he had acquired any distinction whatever as an artist he was merely a skilful and promising pupil when sir joshua reynolds heard of his marriage he exclaimed flaxman is ruined for an artist but it was not so when flaxman's wife heard of the remark she said let us work and economize i will never have it said that anne denbum ruined john flaxman as an artist they economized accordingly to earn money flaxman undertook to collect the local rates and what with art and industry the patient hard-working thrifty couple after five years of careful saving set out for rome together there flaxman studied and worked there he improved his knowledge of art and there he acquired the reputation of being the first of english sculptors the greater number of artists have sprung from humble life if they had been born rich they probably never would have been artists 
they have had to work their way from one position to another and to strengthen their nature by conquering difficulty hogarth began his career by engraving shop bills william sharp began by engraving door plates tassie the sculptor and medalist began life as a stone cutter having accidentally seen a collection of pictures he aspired to become an artist and entered an academy to learn the elements of drawing he continued to work at his old trade until he was able to maintain himself by his new one he used his labor as a means of cultivating his skill in his more refined and elevated profession chantry of sheffield was an economist both of time and money he saved fifty pounds out of his earnings as a carver and gilder paid the money to his master and cancelled his indentures then he came up to london and found employment as a journeyman carver he proceeded to paint portraits and model busts and at length worked his way to the first position as a sculptor canova was a stone cutter like his father and his grandfather and through stone cutting he worked his way to sculpture after leaving the quarry he went to venice and gave his services to an artist from whom he received but little recompense for his work i labored said he for a mere pittance but it was sufficient it was the fruit of my own resolution and as i then flattered myself the foretaste of more honorable rewards for i never thought of wealth he pursued his studies in drawing and modeling in languages poetry history antiquity and the greek and roman classics a long time elapsed before his talents were recognized and then he suddenly became famous lof the english sculptor is another instance of self-denial and hard work when a boy he was fond of drawing at school he made drawings of horses dogs cows and men for pins that was his first pay and he used to go home with his jacket sleeves stuck full of them he and his brothers made figures in clay pope's homer lay on his father's window the boys were so delighted with it that they made thousands of models one taking the greeks and the other the trojans an odd volume of gibbon gave an account of the Colosseum. after the family were in bed the brothers made a model of the Colosseum and filled it with fighting gladiators as the boys grew up they were sent to their usual outdoor work following the plough and doing the usual agricultural labor but still adhering to their modeling at leisure hours at christmas time lof was very much in demand everybody wanted him to make models and pastry for christmas pies the neighboring farmers especially it was a capital practice he afterwards said at length lof went from newcastle to london to push his way in the world of art he obtained passage in a collier the skipper of which he knew when he reached london he slept on board the collier as long as it remained in the thames he was so great a favorite with the men that they all urged him to go back he had no friends no patronage no money what could he do with everything against him but having already gone so far he determined to proceed he would not go back at least not yet the men all wept when he took farewell of them he was alone in london under the shadow of st paul's his next step was to take a lodging in an obscure first floor in burley street 
over a greengrocer's shop and there he began to model his grand statue of milo he had to take the roof off to let milo's head out there hayden found him and was delighted with his genius i went he said to young lof the sculptor who has just burst out and has produced a great effect his milo is really the most extraordinary thing considering all the circumstances in modern sculpture it is another proof of the efficacy of inherent genius one that lof must have been poor enough at this time is evident from the fact that during the execution of his milo he did not eat meat for three months and when peter cox found out he was tearing up his shirt to make wet rags for his figure to keep the clay moist he had a bushel and a half of coals during the whole winter and he used to lie down by the side of his clay model of the immortal figure damp as it was and shiver for hours till he fell asleep chantry once said to hayden when i have made money enough i will devote myself to high art but busts engrossed chantry's time he was munificently paid for them and never raised himself above the money-making part of his profession when hayden next saw chantry at brighton he said to him here is a young man from the country who has come to london and he is doing precisely what you have so long been dreaming of doing the exhibition of milo was a great success the duke of wellington went to see it and ordered a statue sir matthew white idly was much struck by the genius of young lof and became one of his greatest patrons the sculptor determined to strike out a new path for himself he thought the greeks had exhausted the pantheistic and that heathen gods had been overdone lof began and pursued the study of lyric sculpture he would illustrate the great english poets but there was the obvious difficulty of telling the story of a figure by a single attitude it was like a flash of thought the true artist he said must plant his feet firmly on the earth and sweep the heavens with his pencil i mean he added that the soul must be combined with the body the ideal with the real the heavens with the earth it is not necessary to describe the success of mr lof as a sculpture his statue of the mourners is known all over the world he has illustrated shakespeare and milton his puck titania and other great works are extensively known and their genius universally admired but it may be mentioned that his noble statue of milo was not cast in bronze until eighteen sixty two when it was exhibited at the international exhibition of that year the earl of derby in recently distributing the prizes to the successful pupils of the liverpool college one made the following observations the vast majority of men in all ages and countries must work before they can eat even those who are not under the necessity are in england generally impelled by example by custom perhaps by a sense of what is fitted for them to adopt what is called an active pursuit of some sort if there is one thing more certain than another it is this that every member of a community is bound to do something for that community in return for what he gets from it and neither intellectual cultivation nor the possession of material wealth nor any other plea whatever except that of physical or mental incapacity 
can excuse any of us from that plain and personal duty and though it may be in a community like this considered by some to be a heterodox view i will say that it often appears to me in the present day that we are a little too apt in all classes to look upon ourselves as mere machines for what is called getting on and to forget that there are in every human being many faculties which cannot be employed and many wants which cannot be satisfied by that occupation i have not a word to utter against strenuous devotion to business while you are at it but one of the wisest and most thoroughly cultivated men whom i ever knew retired before the age of fifty from a profession in which he was making an enormous income because he said he had got as much as he or any one belonging to him could want and he did not see why he should sacrifice the rest of his life to money-getting some people thought him very foolish i did not and i believe that the gentleman of whom i speak never once repented of his decision footnote one a collection ought to be made and published of lord derby's admirable addresses to young men the gentleman to whom lord derby referred was mr naismith the inventor of the steam hammer and as he himself permitted the story of his life to be published there is no necessity for concealing his name his life is besides calculated to furnish one of the best illustrations of our subject when a boy he was of a bright active cheerful disposition to a certain extent he inherited his mechanical powers from his father who besides being an excellent painter was a thorough mechanic it was in his workshop that the boy made his first acquaintance with tools he also had for his companion the son of an iron founder and he often went to the founder's shop to watch the moulding iron melting casting forging pattern making and smith's work that was going on i look back mr naismith says to the hours of saturday afternoon spent in having the run of the workshops of this small foundry as the true and only apprenticeship of my life i did not trust to reading about such things i saw handled and helped when i could and all the ideas in connection with them became all the details ever after permanent in my mind to say nothing of the no small acquaintance obtained at the same time of the nature of workmen in the course of time young naismith with the aid of his father's tools could do little jobs for himself he made steels for tinder boxes which he sold to his schoolfellows he made model steam engines and sectional models for use at popular lectures and in schools and by selling such models he raised sufficient money to enable him to attend the lectures on natural philosophy and chemistry at the edinburgh university among his works at that time was a working model of a steam carriage for use on common roads it worked so well that he was induced to make another on a larger scale after having been successfully used he sold the engine for the purpose of driving a small factory naismith was now twenty years old and wished to turn his practical faculties to account his object was to find employment in one of the great engineering establishments of the day the first in his opinion was that of henry maudsley of london to attain his object he made a small steam engine every part of which was his own handiwork including the casting and forging he proceeded to london 
introduced himself to the great engineer submitted his drawings showed his models and was finally engaged as mr maudsley's private workman then came the question of wages when naismith finally left home to begin the world on his own account he determined not to cost his father another farthing being the youngest of eleven children he thought he could maintain himself without trenching farther upon the family means and he nobly fulfilled his determination he felt that the wages sufficient to maintain other workmen would surely be sufficient to maintain him he might have to exercise self-control and self-denial but of course he could do that though but a youth he had wisdom enough and self-respect enough to deny himself everything that was unnecessary in order to preserve the valuable situation which he had obtained well about the wages when mr maudsley referred his young workman to the chief cashier as to his weekly wages it was arranged that naismith was to receive ten shillings a week he knew that by strict economy he could live within this amount he contrived a small cooking apparatus of which we possess the drawings it is not necessary to describe his method of cooking nor his method of living it is sufficient to say that his little cooking apparatus in which he still takes great pride enabled him to fully accomplish his purpose he lived within his means and did not cost his father another farthing next year his wages were increased to fifteen shillings he then began to save money he did not put it in a bank but used his savings for the purpose of making the tools with which he afterwards commenced business in the third year of his service his wages were again increased on account doubtless of the value of his services i don't know he has since said that any future period of my life abounded in such high enjoyment of existence as the three years i spent at maudsley's it was a glorious situation for one like myself so earnest as i was in all that related to mechanism in the study of men as well as of machinery i wish many a young man would do as i then did i am sure they would find their reward in that feeling of constant improvement of daily advancement and true independence which will ever have a charm for those who are earnest in their endeavors to make right progress in life and in the regard of all good men after three years spent at maudsley's mr naismith returned to edinburgh to construct a small stock of engineering tools suitable for starting him in business on his own account he hired a workshop and did various engineering jobs in order to increase his little store of money and to execute his little stock of tools this occupied him for two years and in 1834 he removed the whole of his tools and machinery to Manchester. He began business there in a very humble way, but it increased so rapidly that he was induced to remove a choice piece of land on the banks of the Bridgewater Canal at Patricroft, and there make a beginning, at first in wooden sheds, of the now famous Bridgewater Foundry. There, he says, I toiled right heartily until December 31, 1856, when I retired to enjoy an active leisure the result of many an anxious and interesting day. I had there, with the blessing of God, devoted the best years of my life to the pursuit of a business of which I was proud. And I trust that, without undue vanity, 
i may be allowed to say that i have left my mark upon several useful inventions which probably have had no small share in the mechanical works of the age there is scarcely a steamship or locomotive that is not indebted to my steam hammer and without it armstrong and whitworth guns and iron-plated men of war could scarcely have existed but though naismith retired from business at the age of forty-eight he did not seek repose in idleness he continues to be as busy as the busiest but in an altogether different direction instead of being tied to the earth he enjoys himself amongst the stars by means of telescopes of his own making he has investigated the sun and discovered its willow leaves he has examined and photographed the moon and in the monograph of it which he has published he has made us fully acquainted with its geography he is also a thorough artist and spends a considerable portion of his time in painting though he is too modest to exhibit the last time we visited his beautiful home at hammerfield he was busy polishing glasses for one of his new telescopes the motive power being a windmill erected on one of his outhouses another word before we have done if said naismith i were to try to compress into one sentence the whole of the experience i have had during an active and successful life and offer it to young men as a rule and certain receipt for success in any station it would be composed in these words duty first pleasure second from what i have seen of young men and their after progress i am satisfied that what is generally termed bad fortune ill luck and misfortune is in nine cases out of ten simply the result of inverting the above simple maxim such experience as i have had convinces me that absence of success arises in the great majority of cases from want of self-denial and want of common sense the worst of all maxims is pleasure first work and duty second end of section seven read by lawrence trask